Welcome back to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, founder of this podcast and of TOC Culture Consulting, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. Our mission is to provide mentorship and community for leaders all over the world, helping them on their journey. Our podcast is our way to invite you into that journey, into our journey to learn with us. And we appreciate you listening in as I appreciate Heights Youth Coach who left a review that honestly has my head swelling a little bit. They said, I have been listening to this podcast for the past year and it never gets old. The topics, advice, and anecdotes always find a way to touch on the deeper parts of coaching and interpersonal relationships with players and parents, understanding the why of coaching and how to create a positive culture for athletes of all ages is where this podcast separates itself from the rest of the ones out there. This podcast is so much more than X's and O's. It's a deep dive into how to create a better environment for players to succeed, build resiliency, and become better people in the process. The information they provide is solid gold and a must listen for any coaches today. Heights Youth Coach, whoever you are, come on down. Just send me an email and I'll send you some coupons for some free online courses and a couple of books. If you haven't left us a review, yet, please do. You can also head on over to tocculture.com to learn more about our mentorship and coaching program for coaches, our online courses, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which gives weekly insights into leadership and the notes to each week's episode. Enough of all that. Now let's get into part two of our conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Coyle. The metaphor that I go back to over and over again with culture is like, your group is like a flock of birds flying through a forest at high speed, right? And you can't have one bird with a little general hat on saying, everyone turn left here at this tree and then turn right. And then we're going to go underneath that branch. No, you're self-organizing at high speed, right? You're sharing information. You're staying connected. That's the safety part we've already talked about. But the vulnerability part is sharing information with everybody so everybody can self-organize and make a decision and, and fly around where you want to fly. And so that's what vulnerability is really about, which has nothing to do with, you know, your childhood or your deep emotions. It has everything to do with you being really, really honest about where you're strong, about where you're weak, about where your team is strong or where your team is weak, and being relentlessly and warmly candid with each other so that you can get better together. I think that's what's challenging about that for athletes and even for coaches and, and on coaching staffs is that involves a little bit of conflict, right? Like you're kind of putting yourself out there. And I remember I was reading um, Adam Grant's work recently. He was talking about some studies around conflict and how there's actually a difference in relational conflict. You don't actually want a lot of relational conflict. You want that to be kind of low within the culture. And I think it's kind of maybe he calls it performance conflict, you know, like where you're just, there's disagreements. I think that really kind of, you know, speaks to what you were saying in some of your work, where you say something in the effect of how we should avoid brutal feedback and uh, embraced warm candor. And, and I, I hear that and I'm like, okay, I like that. And I understand that. But what does that look like in the heat of battle? Like, what's that look like in a game? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Well, I kind of saw it in a game, actually, this, um, this idea, it was a game that happened in a, in a restaurant, of all things. Um, but there's a restaurant called the Gramercy Tavern. And it's, you know, like a really, really, it's like they're like the Navy SEALs of the restaurant world. And there was a, a, a server there named Whitney. It was her 
her first day in the front of the house and she had been spent, she had spent six months at the back of the house training, shadowing, getting ready for this. And the crowd's lining up out front. And right before the, the door opens, a Whitney's manager leans over and, and whispers something in her ear. And I'm thinking like, oh, what, what did he say? This is a big moment, right? This is like the, you know, your, your rookie point guard about to go on the field, on the court. And um, what he, did he say, you know, like, good luck, you can do it. Did he say, I believe in you? What he said was, uh, if you don't ask me for help 10 times today, it's going to be bad. That's what he said. Really interesting, right? Now, it's kind of brutal, kind of sounds kind of hard, right? Like, yeah, you're going to make 10 mistakes today. But think more deeply about that message. Don't keep your head down. You are going to make mistakes. I expect that. And that's safe. Ask for, you're going to ask for help 10 times. And when you do have that feeling of, shoot, I made a mistake, put your head up and look for help because we're here to help you, right? That's a really cool message. It's very candid. It is very candid. It's very clear about the mistakes she's going to make, but it's also very warm because it emphasizes this interconnected team around her that's there to help her. He could have been just brutally honest. He could have said, you're getting your ass kicked today. Right? That, that would have been true. Like she did get her ass kicked that day, right? Like everybody does sometimes, but that would not have been useful. Like to be a real leader, it's not enough to be brutally honest. Brutal honesty is such a low bar. It is such a low bar to walk around thinking you're helping your team by being brutally honest without any connection, without any warmth, without any path to the future, without any sense of what the context is, is just, it's just bad coaching. So I think that's why we've seen this change in our coaching world. I think we're all around the same age. Um, but when we were all growing up, who were the best coaches? You know, Bobby Knight was a great coach, you know, and you, you, had, you, had, you had all this whole sort of species of this variety of coach that existed across all sports. Um, and it was the authoritarian king who knew everything and who was the source of knowledge and, and who told everybody what to do in this command and control model. And that was what coaching was. And in our lifetime, we've seen this, the Bobby Knights get shifted out and the Steve Kerrs rise. And it's not because they're nicer, though they are. Um, it's because it works better. It's because you're actually connecting with that flock of birds and helping them to fly, just like that waiter helped Whitney by saying, you're going to mess up. And when you do, you look for your team. Bobby Knight would not have said that to Whitney, right? Bobby Knight would have humiliated her and scared her into doing well, which she would have done well for a while. And then she would have burned out and then she would have uh, drifted away. Right. That's, that's how that model works. And that model, that model does, it does work. That's the thing. Fear works, you know, uh, authority works, but it only works for like simple problems and it only works for a short amount of time. So you know, I think now in the world of sports and the world of business, and I'd even say in the world of parenting, um, the landscape we're navigating and the problems we face are so complex that these old ways of just sort of my way or the highway, Bobby knighting your way through stuff, it, it, it just, it can work for a little while, but it's just very poorly suited to solve the problems we face. I want to ask you the other side of that that relationship, because I think one of the things that I know, again, the coaches that we work with struggle with is 
there's a certain appetite, I think, for getting feedback from players or from your assistant coaches about what is this experience really like? And did that practice really, you know, go the way I thought it went, you know, as the, as the commander, as the guy that planned it in the book, you use this phrase a couple different times that vulnerability precedes trust. And I think that's difficult. You got power dynamics between players and coaches, assistants and head coaches. What are some tips for coaches to encourage more candor from, from their players and from their assistants? Yeah. Uh, tip one, ask for it in an authentic way. Um, you know, really say, I need your help on this. This is, take some, you need to take some cracks at this, right? Take some cracks at this. Um, tip two would be to, to show the impact of it. You know, when you have your Steve Kerr video guy moment, spotlight it, celebrate it, overthink people, thank people for their impact. Um, you know, really finding finding ways to, to normalize that really, because as I say, we're kind of reflexively authoritative, very deferential, very deferential people, but to continually have these conversations. And I guess tip three would be to diffuse your own authority. The first time I went to uh, guardian spring training, when you walked into the coach's room, there was a picture of Terry Francona on the wall, like a Xerox picture. And his glasses were kind of askew and he had a goofy expression on his face and above it was written, I demand respect. It was, it was hilarious, right? It was hilarious. It's like, he's a hall of fame coach. He's won the world series. He brought the Boston back from a hundred year uh, drought. And what is, what does he have there? So he's actively diffusing any sense that he's Bobby Knight, right? He's not, he's saying, um, I'll earn your respect, you know, and I'll earn your respect by treating you like a human being and asking and, and learning from you. Uh, that's how I'm going to earn your respect. So I think it's not a signal that you know, it's funny to talk about it in terms of tips because it's not like you can do it three times and forget it, right? It's a continual signal that you're sending of saying, I don't have all the answers. We're doing, what we're doing is really hard. And nobody here has all the answers, but together, if we keep letting the best idea win and keep having good arguments among ourselves and, and embracing these tensions, um, we're going to get to a good answer together. And, and that's something that idea that you referred to, uh, JP, of, of task conflict versus relational conflict. You know, task conflict is awesome. It's, it's let the best idea win, and then we go out for a beer afterwards right? Our relationship is strong. We've let the ideas fight it out. And we're both kind of happy at the result because we got a great result. I think what we found, and I think there's a number of anecdotes in both books that would echo this, is that there's a reciprocation there too. Like the more openness that I have to feedback, the more my players are receptive to feedback. And I can think of an example in my first year last year at Mount Vernon, I put in this, you know, pregame, this is how we want to warm up. And I told our captains, you know, if you guys don't like it, I don't know what's going to fit you guys best. Tell me what you want to change, you know? And so there's this thing we chant, we did at the end and we've done it for the last three schools I've been at. We've always done this circle thing. And they're like, coach, we don't like it. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, we just need to come up with something where we're finishing together, whatever you guys want that to be. And so they changed it before our first game and they were happy with it. And then the next practice, we, we go through it. They do the whole thing but our effort isn't great. You know? And I said, listen, 
this is great. I think we've got the procedure down, but now our effort's going to have to be better for us going forward. And I think there was an openness to that because I was open first, right? And so that it's a relationship, like it's that it's a dance as you describe it, you know, in the book as well. Yeah, it's and and it's and it's a relationship where the burden to to establish that is on you, right? Like like you have to do it first, that and you have to normalize that and then you have to continually normalize that because if you ever sort of drifted back and just, and they came to you with an idea and you crossed your arms and said, hell no, you'd lose all of that. Whatever exchange, whatever good conversational uh, journey you were on, you would lose it. So this, this thing, it's not, um, we keep reinforcing the same point that the culture is like this, this behavioral language that you never stop speaking. Like you're always speaking it with each other and you're always sending these, these signals of, safety and vulnerability and, and purpose together over and over again. And, and hopefully that'll nudge you in a, in a better spot as time goes by. And I think that kind of brings us to the last third here is this idea of purpose. And again, one of the things that is common and a lot of teams, a lot of organizations do this is that purpose, you know, we try to put it into one phrase or one mission statement or one document, a man, you know, manifesto is a word we use, what have you. But Again, what I took away from the culture playbook is that it's not really the one phrase. It's a tapestry. It's stories. It's artifacts. It's the mantras. And they all communicate a common thread. Why is it that you have to communicate it in so many different ways? Why isn't it enough just to say we cure cancer, we win basketball games or whatever it might be? I know. I know. Well, again, it goes back to the way we're built. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with some of your listeners might be familiar with the gorilla experiment. Have you ever seen that? It's a, it's a basketball one where you know, people are passing a basketball. Five people are passing a basketball. Some are wearing white, some are wearing black shirts. And you're asked to count how many passes the team with white shirts makes. So you're focused on that. And dirt, partway through the experiment, a gorilla walks out in the middle, right in between the basketball players, bangs his chest three or four times, and then walks slowly away. And then at the end, the quiz is how many of you saw the gorilla? And the answer is half the people don't. Fully half. It's insane. I mean, we've, I've done this experiment and people can't believe their eyes and you rewind the tape and there is the gorilla, right? The, the reason that we have to be so explicit about purpose and so tapestry-ish about it is that we're human beings. We have got these brains that are so great at denying, ignoring, having tunnel vision, not seeing, focusing on what's right in front of us, solving whatever puzzle we have in front of our noses, that we require this neon lit tapestry put before us. This windshield is another metaphor that I've, I've seen used a lot. You know, this windshield that says, you know what's important right here? Curing cancer is important. Right. You know, like, you know, what's important. right? And then finding those many different ways. And the reason that tapestry is important is because each of those ways, almost like a GPS marker, like if, if you were trying to travel through a jungle to find Machu Picchu and your map just had you and Machu Picchu on it, it would be hard to find. Right. Because you just and that's what let's cure cancer is. Right. It's just the one signal. But if you had a bunch of landmarks along the way. If you had a bunch of arrows, a bunch of things that said this river and that tree and this bird, then you could find it. And that's exactly how these, these things work, especially when they're co-created. 
especially when they're generated, not top down, but bottom up. I, I, I was at a recent uh, gathering of a team, um, a business team that was trying to kind of capture their purpose. They're trying to capture what they did and what they came up with um, in their, one of their mantras was do epic shit. Like that was it, right? It had nothing to do with, with, with anything. Like it's spectacularly dumb, right? It's like what a skier would say. It's spectacularly dumb. Did it work for that team? It totally did. Because when you said that phrase, all of them picture what's happening in their brains. They're remembering people and stories and, and, and symbols and imagery that comes from you know, their time together. And now whenever they're working on a project, they can say, is this epic or not? Like, like all good navigation, it gives you a lens to put on yourself and get on the roof, if you want to call it that, and say, Am I on track or not? Like, or is this non-epic? Like, I don't think we should do this project. It's kind of non-epic. Or let's move our attention over to this project. This one, this one has some epic shit. So that's the way it works. It's like to generate from the bottom up, not from the top down, and to continually do it. And that's one of the things that I think a good leader, a good culture leader has is kind of an ear for melody when it comes to that stuff. When you hear a good saying, when you see something cool happen, when you notice a cool chant, when you notice a good rhythm, when you see a great story of the walk-on kid who stayed late or <laughs> it was a story that came out of San Antonio. After Tim Duncan retired, he went and coached there. And one day they were running and a player threw up. And Tim Duncan wiped up the court after this guy threw up. Tim Duncan, Hall of Famer is wiping up the vomit of a rookie player. Okay, that's a story, right? That's a memorable image. That is a cultural beacon that um, you better believe they talk about it. You better believe they remember it. You better believe that they use it in the culture. And, and good cultures are always looking to, just like that flock of birds, like we need, we need some, some lights to navigate by. And, and those stories, especially when they're, when they bubble up from beneath and you, you build them together, that's what provides that, that light that you can travel by. I think one of the challenges that I, I kind of see, though, in the world of sports, though, Dan, and, and one of this is, and I know you, I, you were talking about like that one business team, you know, their, their thing was to you know, make epic shit or do epic shit, right? Uh, which I love. And this is potentially a team in business, which, you know, they're, they're constantly changing within the year and managers, you know, every year. But an organization like the Spurs or, an, or in like a college team, let's say, where you're recruiting players in, how do you balance this whole thing of like, well, here I'm the leader. I, I kind of have to set this vision and purpose with allowing the players to come in and be a part of that process. I really struggle with this, you know, because I think obviously every context is different. But I think in sports, you know, with the Spurs, but you go back to them with, with Pop. I mean, he's been there over 20 years almost, right? So it, it's at this stage. You know, with rookies coming in, are they part of that process, or you know, you know, how, how does how do leaders balance that? Yeah, I think they I, I think they think of it um, very contextually. You know, every group is different. You know, and every every year is different, and the kinds of kids you're getting are different all the time. And you see these. Um, I think good coaches do it kind of 
half from tradition and instinct and half is kind of an experiment where they're continually learning. Like there was a time where Sam Presti at Oklahoma City Thunder had this thing where they visited this, they took the rookies, anybody new on the team went to visit the site of the Oklahoma City bombing from 1995, which is a very moving place with all these chairs set on a green lawn. And it was a way of getting them in touch with the soul of the city. This is who we are. This is what we've been through together. This is what the, when you hear these fans scream for you, this is what they've been through. And, um, you know, again, doesn't like make sense, really. They're playing basketball. Some of these people weren't even alive when this happened. Um, But it worked as a connective thing. So they kind of doubled down on that. So they take this sort of probing experimental approach where I think part of it is you're trying to, you're trying to have two ingredients. I'd say most of the good ones have two ingredients. One is here's what's unchanging. Here's who we are at Kentucky. Here's who we are at Notre Dame. Um, and then the other part is kind of customizing to you kids now, right? Who are you now? And, and what do we want to build together now? So in the, in the fusing of those ingredients and continually kind of exploring around that in that, and and trying new stuff, you know there was um, the the Browns were an interesting case study of this. Uh, they've got their own cultural challenges now, obviously, but um, in 2020 they brought on a new coach, Kevin Stefanski. They had lost, you know, like 33 of their previous 34 games or something like that. Um, and Stefanski was in the unenviable position of having to build a, a team during COVID. So. They were trying to get together without being able to be together. They're meeting on Zoom calls, basically. And he tried, and as an experiment, tried this exercise that he had borrowed. And again, this borrowing, I think good coaches in this space are continually being thieves uh, and, and, and looking for good stuff to steal and borrow. They don't think that they can invent everything themselves. And he had a conversation with a colleague who is at VCU basketball. And they were talking about connection and how to build connection because this was obviously on Stefanski's mind. And the VCU coach shared an exercise that they did called the four H's. And it was where you, you get in small groups and you share your hopes, your history, your heartbreak, and your hero. And short conversations, high disclosure, um, really uh, tons of vulnerability uh, in, the, in kind of the personal disclosure space of saying, here's my heartbreak, here's my hero, here's my history. Um, and it was incredibly effective. They were able to kind of create, you know, real connections across position groups, across ages, across rookies and veterans, um, at a time where doing that was extremely challenging. And they ended up having a very cohesive team that year in part because of those conversations, Stefanski would say. And, and so I think that's the kind of, that's, that's the kind of approach that I think smart coaches take, um, to always be on the lookout for things that will connect in this moment, but also to be alert to the unchanging pillars that they want to build their, their program around. And, and, and as those, those pillars, they may evolve over the years, right? You know, um, and I think, you know, most of the successful ones that I've seen, one of the pillars always ends up being about growth, about learning, right? You know, they don't make it about these sort of fixed historical things. They make it about the change that is possible when people have the courage to kind of go to the very edge of their ability and fail and then try again.
and we want to be respectful of your time here. So I'm going to get you out of here on two quick ones. This might be an interesting question. I don't know if I've heard you answer this on any of your interviews yet, but when you have gone through this process over the last four or five years of studying great culture and looking at business organizations and education and, and sports and across the board, you've got a wife and kids of your own. And I, I wonder, has there been an impact on you and your family in terms of just what it's been like to see this, you know, these successful traits in all these other groups and bring that home? Has that impacted you at all on the home front? I'll bet all your coaches would say yes to this sort of thing. I certainly would say yes. Being around good leaders and good cultures cannot help but uh, affect you in a deep way because you see, you know, communication at its best and you see the power. You know, I sort of grew up with the model of kind of the old fashioned uh, father figure, you know, who like is the source of all the power and knows the answers and, and, um, and being around leaders, um, like like Pop, like Steve Kerr, like Tito Francona, you you sort of realize um, the power of not doing that, the power of saying of being a lot more open and vulnerable, and instead of saying, "How did your day go today?" to your kids when they come home for dinner, instead you confess a big mistake that you made that day. Like that that vulnerability loop uh, creates real conversation and real energy and real curiosity. Um, and you tune in more to kind of these, you know, this, this just time when you're together and these, these cues of just sort of taking care of each other, just in the kitchen, unloading the dishwasher becomes more meaningful and more fun and more interesting. Um, so, yeah, it does. It, it shifts you and it definitely has. I think being more um, providing more vulnerability and visibility and creating that in the family and, and ex thanking people more often that that's been a big impact. Um, and kind of slowing down, like the act of a lot of these, these good behaviors and these, these strong culture things happen in the pause. Like, you know, we always glorify the action in our culture and the, the, the great performance, but actually that pause you know, that, you know, when we talk to where Steve Kerr goes to the video intern and says, what do you think? Like, like that's the moment when culture happens or when you sort of stop and say, how did you think that went? Like, what would be better to help me be, help me do something better. Um, that's a pause. And so I think overall it kind of tunes you into the power of that pause um, because that's the pause where like relationships really get built. Well, the book is called The Culture Playbook, uh, just released, I think, this past week. We'll get you out of here on this question. But uh, as JP knows, writing a book is a labor of love, and sometimes it becomes a labor. <laughs> when you're at the finish line, you know, and you look back on the work, what are you most proud of uh, with The Culture Playbook? Wow. I, I guess I can say the illustrations because my daughter Zoe had a huge role in conceptualizing them, and it was a treat to be on kind of a, a good team with her and this my other illustrator, his name is Mike Rohde, who was a wonderful coach to Zoe and a wonderful friend. So to be like uh, privileged to be part of those conversations and then to see that work evolve through all these iterations and then come out in a nice finish, that's been the most rewarding piece for me. All right, that's it for our conversation with Daniel Coyle. I've read Culture Code more than any book in the last five years. Actually, <laughs> that's a lie. Uh, Stickman by Julia Donaldson. That's the author who wrote The Gruffalo uh, that's probably, that's the number one book in our house. But anyways, you're missing out. Uh, check it out, The Culture Code. And then the follow-up to that, The Culture Playbook. There's a lot of great strategies in there that you want to check out. 
Thanks so much for listening in to today's podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe.